0: A man become preeminent, he is expected to have enthusiasms. 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 What a mine? What draws my admiration? What is that which gives me joy? James! music, Baseball! <laughs> Alrighty folks, welcome back to the Poe Hitter Podcast This is Rob D, the dead Poe Hitter Have a very special episode today But first, hope everyone is having a wonderful holidays and end of the year This is the time of year to begin making your goals for the next year In life, and fantasy baseball, everything Wipe the, slate. Wipe the slate clean, start fresh And really re-energize yourself at this time of year Um, So for this episode My guest is the second highest grossing NFBC fantasy baseball player in history He's made over $600,000 In the NFBC platform He has won five of the last six diamond auctions In the NFBC which is a tremendous feat His name is Johnson Johnson And pretty much anyone in the NFC community will know who he is and the amount of the great stretch that he's on right now and just pretty much dominating leagues and winning a number of high-stakes leagues. Uh, He's won auction championship leagues, supers, 400 draft champions. Got a pretty impressive resume and... We really got down to talking a lot about auctions because that is his wheelhouse and something I want to do more drafts of this year and also try to do a lot more content of this year. I feel like there's a, a little bit of void for auction content leagues. Um, so I'm going to try to put that out there and this was a great place to start because this gentleman has just been winning the best leagues consistently every year so it was a great conversation and um i thank greg ambrosius for helping me reach out to him because uh he's not on twitter and you know lives a nice private life which a lot of people do and it's much respected i respect everyone's privacy and ability to want to stay keep stuff close to their vest and stuff like that so but um, I reached out to Greg to see if um, he had a contact for him, and he graciously um, got back to me, and with the willingness to come on to the show, um, I'd been, you know, my style here is to try to get some of the best players in the world to come on and talk about their strategy and how they're being successful. So, this was a great land uh, for the podcast and for the community itself, because, you um, a lot of people were, you know, egging me to try to get him on because it would just be, you know, the guy they wanted to hear the most out of the people who I haven't had on the podcast yet. So really, really appreciate him coming out and lending his voice and a really refreshing voice and tone toward a lot of the 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 things that we normally hear or uh, consume ourselves with. Very focused on his own team, which is fantastic and not worried about anything going on around him who's bidding on what player who has what money left he has his eyes on his prize and that's how he really gears toward winning and he consistently was um, noting the facts of making sure to dedicate your time to things that are going to be actionable and the things that are going to make you better and to help you win. You have limited time, limited resources to um, apply. You know anything, uh, studying, evaluating, and you have to be able to know what what's going to be helping you and what is stuff that you could pass on and not worry about too much. And um, so, with all uh, with all that out of the way, um, enjoy the episode. All right, everyone, welcome back to the Pull Hitter podcast. I'm Rob D., the dead pull hitter. My special guest tonight is the second most career earnings leader on the NFBC. Mr. Johnson, thank you for joining me tonight. And uh, it's a pleasure to get to talk to someone who has such a stellar track record as yourself.
1: Hey, thanks for having me, Rob. I, I really appreciate it. Um, I really appreciate all the work you do putting content out there because I, I couldn't do what I do without, you know, know, content creators like yourself, um, giving me that information to you. So, uh, I really appreciate it. I'm, uh, you know, happy to be on, talk some baseball and give back a little bit.
0: That's great, man. I really, I really appreciate that. That's, uh, that's the best feedback I, I get. And, um, it's fun. It's a fun little, um, hobby and it's a great little, uh, you know, community that we had in the, in the NFBC. I'm pretty new, you know, re- relatively to a lot of the veterans. I started in 2019 and quickly um, not only loved everything about playing on the site, but just getting to know everyone who's been a veteran and even the newcomers. Um, it's really, uh, it's taken up a life of its own. And the podcasting you know, I never really wanted to gear it toward the the NFBC. But then once I won the draft champions overall, um, it kind of just was easy to reach out to everyone involved and really just like learn things that I would have never, you know, learned if I hadn't spoken to people who play the game in such different ways. And I think that's the best thing about fantasy, right? It's just like we all have these, you know, approaches that we take to try to be good and successful and it could be in so like in so many different forms and I think that's my favorite part just like getting to learn everybody's um because I think player evaluation is is one thing but when you get to into someone's brain about how they approach it and how they try to be um great every year that's really like the most important part of playing yeah absolutely congrats
1: on that overall Rob I mean that's super impressive I have uh, I've yet to get one under my belt so uh Props to you for that,
0: which makes you being number two, career or time even more impressive. That you haven't had, you know, that big bump by, by uh, you know, like an overall prize. Um, but I heard that you know, rumor is that Casey Cha is not playing this year, so you have a chance to jump into first place. Is that something that you ever thought when you started like getting involved with this?
1: Yeah, um, I never really did it. it For financial reasons. I always just did it because I'm a competitor um, and I just like to um, focus on anything really. It was when I was younger, it was baseball, basketball, football. I played every sport. And then when I got older, my body broke down. It's more mental now. So, uh, you know, fantasy baseball just gives me that outlet to kind of just keep competing in my uh, my old age here. So um, that's what it's been about for me more or less.
0: That's awesome. So you grew up playing sports?
1: Yeah, I did. Yeah. My dad was, a was a real good athlete. He went to Penn state. Um, my mom as well. I have two younger brothers, all of us played, um, played football. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, um, and I got, I got a son now and he's, he's huge. He's like the 99th percentile for his like size and weight. And he's just mauling kids in youth football. (laughs) So it's, it's been, uh, you know, football has been, you know, a big part of my life for sure.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. So that, that, um, that desire to stay in some competition it's like you said you know once the body breaks down the mind doesn't and if anything the mind gets more of it you know like gets a double than it used to i feel the same way it's like you know i feel that's like it fulfills you know going to play some like a pickup basketball game or playing in a softball league and it's just um it's it's great so when did you actually start playing fantasy baseball
1: So I want to say roughly 10 years ago, I started um, in some smaller stakes leagues, um, and I had some success uh, early on, not a ton, but enough to keep going um, and learn along the way uh, from just the experience of it. And, you know, each year I found myself getting a little bit better at what I was doing And to the point where I felt comfortable entering more high stakes contests. And that's when I started entering uh, the diamond auction, uh, for example, and some supers as well.
0: That's awesome. Um, Did you, what was your first experience like in the NFBC? I guess, like, what were you thinking in terms of, wow, I need to get to this level or it was like an, like an incremental thing where every year you try to get better in like a specific category or something like, you you know, you try to bring your weaknesses up.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, it's kind of taken me a long time to hone in on what my system is. You know, what do you come into a draft with? Um, How do you prepare for your draft? How do you manage the team in season? Um, How do you evaluate players? all these things you just got to kind of pick up as you go and um and learn and get better um with with your approach and i feel like i've really gotten to kind of focus in on what um what i really need to do because i don't have a ton of time to devote to it right so Mm -hmm. what i do really has to be important what can i be spending my time on to help me win right and then keeping out of the weeds, like staying away from all the nonsense that you can burn hours and hours. If you really get into some of the advanced stats, you really have to just hone in and focus in on what can I be doing now to help me win um, as you're preparing for your, for your fantasy baseball leagues. Um, So I've kind of gotten pretty good at that process and I have a really good um, system at at this point.
0: That's, that's such a great point that you made because you can really get lost in things. And I feel like that probably the the biggest reason when people go like really wrong and they just don't spend enough time in the things that do matter and yeah, it's uh that's such a that's such a great because that's not easy. It's not easy to like you know have a structured life and take that limited time that you have and make it actionable make it you know, like you said and be focused in on the things that you could definitely use to make you better um what what formats in the NFPC, are, are you usually getting involved with every year?
1: So um, my primary um, focus is auctions. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I have done some, you know, I've done main events and some some of the snake draft private leagues, like the supers and the ultimates along the way. But my main prep is for auctions. Um, about 80% of my stake is in auction leagues and about 20% is in snakes so um, uh, most of my process of, you know, my pre-draft process is trying to focus on building my, you know, my auction draft plan. It's kind of like building a puzzle where you have, you know, the border and the border is kind of like your one, $2 players. And then the bigger pieces in the middle are kind of your big buys, right? So um, yeah, so so for me, I kind of really, really focus on on the auction side of things as I'm preparing the draft season
0: that's great i'm i'm gonna try to get more involved in the auctions this year i've done the lesser like 150 and fifty dollar auctions and um i just it's so much fun and it's uh i'm ready to try to take that next step and um you know usually i feel like in every time i've you know tried to uh test myself a little more at first it's just like a little smack in the face but then you know I feel like getting to see everyone's process too helps a lot when trying to get better. Um, so what do you feel like is the biggest, I guess, um, transition when you're going from a snake league to an auction league What What's the biggest, uh, what's the biggest difference in terms of how you prepare for it and what you have to do to get like your player rankings?
1: Yeah, I mean, auctions really a completely different animal. You have to really know the player pool inside and out. Um, you know, you could plan on getting, say, you really, um, uh, say, you really want like Yelich, and you're just going to get them no matter what. What happens if you don't get Yelich? Who are you going to get if someone just bids you up and you're out on them, right? So you can have a plan, but then you have to have a backup plan. And if that doesn't quite work hey. out, you have to know exactly where to pivot. And so you're it's such a complex like web. You really have to know the player pool inside and out, what each player brings street, you know, um, to the table. And, um, and so that is a, a little bit different than a snake where you can kind of really be helped in a lot of ways by ADP. And that's not going to steer you too wrong if you more or less stick to that and you can, most teams come out of snake drafts, pretty balanced and pretty competitive in an auction, you can lose your league on draft day if you're not prepared and if you execute poorly. Um, so I think an advantage can be gained doing an auction if you are more seasoned and experienced versus a snake draft. There's a little more luck involved.
0: Right. I definitely would agree with that. Um So you're your success in the diamond auction is pretty, pretty, le- pretty legendary. If anyone knows how to navigate to the, um, the NFBC historical pages, but I believe you won four, four out of the last five or four in a row. Is it four yeah. A so row? five out of the last six, five eight, out of the last six. Five last four. That's awesome. That's a, that's pretty amazing. Um, like I said, it's just a bunch of ones on your, on your player page here. And it's just really, really fascinating. But so what's your, what's your biggest key that's uh, driving that diamond auction success? And I guess is, is part of it, being able to know like pretty much your competition every year and just maybe starting to get a, you know like a book on them as well and their tendencies. Um, As
1: far as that goes, I don't focus in on my competitors at all really. Um, I can it's think of great. one. I can think of one time I did it, um, but it was a small thing. But for the most part, I'm in my own little world uh, I, on draft day. It doesn't matter who's bidding to me. Whatever the number is, that's what's important to me. So I'm not even half the time. I don't even if I'm in a bidding war. I don't even know who I'm bidding against. It's just a, a voice. Um, <laughs> but I think the main thing would be to come up with a plan. Um, uh, you know, a plan of attack. And I think you really got to start with the bottom of the player pool. What one and two, $3 players do you want? Which one, which $1 players can be $15 players, $20 players. Um, so for me, it was, you know, Christian Walker was a big player last year for me. I identified him early on as a cleanup hitter and everyday player, you know, and with 30 homer season on, in, his, in his recent past and I got him in five of my six leagues as a $1 player. So I was planning on getting Walker, right? That's like, that was my corner infield piece. That's my dollar there. Right. And I did have alternates and backups to him. Right. So, and then I identified Nestor Cortez early on in the process, right. He was going to be like my $1, you know, pitcher. That's going to give me 15, $20 of value. I saw what he did in previous years. He just was not valued properly last properly last season. So I was playing on, get, I only got three shares of him, unfortunately. Um, so I executed poorly in some situations, but um, so I think finding those guys and then building around that, like okay, if I have a one dollar corner infielder, then I'm gonna spend up on other positions, catcher maybe for example, or shortstop, um, where I can't quite find the right one or two dollar player. Um, so kind of building the right draft plan and then having you know I have the the players I'm targeting right, and it adds up to about two sixty in value. And if I don't get those players, I have my first alternate, second and third alternate, right? Um, So I'm fine getting any of my alternates. And if I don't get my alternates, then I have a list of one to $2 players that, you know, so if I'm taking a flyer on a guy for a dollar or two, I know exactly where I'm going. I'm not just gonna get a random player. If I'm stuck at, you know, in the end game, I feel very comfortable there because I know exactly where I'm going for a buck or two at every position. So that's, that's kind of, that's yeah. more or less my process.
0: That's awesome. I mean, I really, <laughs> I really, um, I was really happy when you said it's just a voice because so many people, you know, talk about, you know, being, I guess, aware of the room and paying attention to everything. But I love how zoned in and locked in that you are to just worrying about your team. Uh, that's so awesome to hear and you sound so confident about it too like it's just great it's like like you said you just have to get to that number and nothing else matters right
1: exactly for sure
0: that's that's really cool man um so does if you're if you hit on like um your second or third tier of that one two dollar player and in turn does it affect like who you're spending up top on or is it go hand in like is it hand in hand or is this sometimes where maybe a specific cheaper player we like i guess uh links into how you're gonna spend up top
1: right yeah so usually the dollar or two players that identify as my like go-to targets will affect what i'm doing with the top end of the player pool so if I like. You know, if I like um the corner infield one dollar, two dollar players, I'll let Abreu go. I'll let Alonso go. I'll let unless I can get them for substantial value. Like in the diamond auction last year, I was planning on letting all the first baseman and third baseman go and drafting, you know, one to five dollar players at first, third, and corner. Um, but I got into the diamond and I had Goldschmidt as a twenty-five dollar player. Um his average auction value was 25, right? So I had him as fairly, you know, properly valued. You know, it's 18 bucks going once, going twice. I go 19, right? If I get Colchman at 19, I got $6 of value, right? And the bidding stalled out there. I probably would have let him go if someone went 20. Um, But so I will shop, even though I'm not planning on getting a certain high place player at a certain position. Um, So I'm not gonna let us like a certain opportunity pass me by um, so my plan is definitely not rigid. It's very, um, you
0: know, fluid. Yeah, fluid. that's, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's, that's great too, because I, I feel like that's when I first started playing, I've been, I, my homekeeper league is auction and I feel like whenever I, um, am too stiff and I get too stuck into what I want to do and that's when you can't. That's when you can't adjust on the fly, live at the draft, when in in your head, you didn't write down Goldschmidt's name, but you're going for such a great price that, you know, you should be able to, I don't know, that's something I slowly am fixing, you know, <laughs> it's just a stubborn part of my brain that, um, I guess, uh, it's just like the way, like, uh, I like my life too, it's any like little mishap, and it throws me off kilts just for a little bit, but I get back on track, but, um, yeah, that's, uh, that's a pretty good approach. I think, I think the biggest thing too is, um, uh, like you, like you mentioned with, um, like having that ability to move on the fly, do you have to also in return, like, I don't know, like how, I guess, let me just ask you just flat out, like what else is there in the approach like what else are you identifying um do you know when you want to get a certain pitcher or a certain mix of you know bats to offense um to pitchers money-wise is that something that you're walking in with and also i guess too my question would be in terms of the players do you have like broad tiers or there's just like specific values that you see in people that you want to grab
1: Sure. Um, in the past, I had been fairly old school in my approach as far as building hitters, right? And then more sleeper pitchers, more of like a 70-30 approach, right? I wanted to have my 90-90, my 90 bombs, my 90 steals with my first three picks. Like I was very old school for a long time. Um, and the one year I lost um, was a year that I, I, I reevaluated what I did in that season. It was five years ago. And I kind of changed my approach really radically that offseason. I did some research and I really had to kind of just, I mean, the NFBC sets the rules, right? So the players are valued based on what the rules are. And the fact that you start 14 hitters and nine pitchers, that gives the pitchers more value, right? Each hitter is worth one 14th or 7% of your hitting totals. Each starting pitcher is worth really one-seventh if you're starting two closers, right? One-seventh or each pitcher's worth 14% of your starting pitching, right? So the starting pitchers are almost twice as impactful statistically as each of your bats are, right? So, you know, based on that, I've been starting to build with more of a pocket aces strategy recently where I'm getting at least two top-tier arms and potentially even a pretty good third so, I'm spending almost like fifty five forty five these days <clears throat> excuse me mm-hmm. um with my um with my with my plan and I don't see that changing much um based on some of the success I've had with it in the last couple of seasons
0: that's interesting split i that's um and I think that's i think that makes sense too because I think all of my better teams this year um even like the approach I took in the online championships i depth wise too I I wanted to have like better pitchers. I didn't want to stream off the wire or try to keep that to like a complete minimum it's a lot easier in 12 team leagues you know to try to accomplish that in a draft at least a snake draft but um 5545 is is pretty interesting for sure so do you do you are you um what is your split with your with your relievers what's the trend been for that out of the out of that split
1: yeah um you i you know i i i i usually draft two closers um and every once in a while i'll get a third depending on how the draft goes um so i am looking to get that you know two closer baseline um and um you know i don't love punting any categories even if it's a private league so um Last year was a little bit tricky because so many teams have been starting to go with the closer by committee. So the closers got pushed up. They're more expensive than ever. Um, so, and I've almost always shopped in that mid to lower tier price point of, of, the closers. You know, I try to pick out the, you know, it's, it'll change year to year. Right. Cause it's never the same player pool. Mm-hmm. Um, but, in my perfect plan would be to target two of, you know, a $10 closer, get two of those. So I'm not, I'm not spending too much at the position. Um, If you get the right ones, they're just as valuable as the ones you pay 20 to 25 for. Um, But the the pool is shrinking with more teams going, going with the committee. Um, So it's, you know, it can get a little tricky.
0: Yeah. Because at that point you, you could still be spending that similar amount, but not getting, as Much impact at least saves wide. Maybe you'll get some ratios, you know. Obviously, if they're just a great all around believer in general, but you know, like right now, in like that 100 to 140 range at ADP, you're getting the Clay Holmes, the Munoz, um, the D uh, Duran, where there's you know a question of whether they can get to maybe 15, 20, you know, um, maybe even 10. And so you're not getting that like, you know, 25, 30 saves you, you'd you want from each closer. Um, so do you use, so you use AA, AAV, like you'll look at what what the market is is saying in the other auction drafts on the NFPC and and use that in your draft?
1: Yeah, 100%. Um, that's one of the most important pieces of information that, that I get, to be honest, because it tells me how... The players are valued by my competitors, by the public, by anyone I'm going to be drafting against. So I have to take that number, whatever it is for each player, and determine whether that player is undervalued, properly valued, or overvalued. And if I see a $10 player that I think should be a $20 player, I'll target him. If I see a $25 player that should be a $15 player, I'll fade him. Um, And then anyone that's kind of, you know, valued properly, I'll buy it. I'll buy that kind of that type of player, if, if the draft gives it to me, um, if not, if it gets to that number or above, I let him go. So yeah, it's, it's, I think it's, it's huge, you know, as far as preparing, um, you know, cause you have to kind of, it, it's all about building the best team you can for you know $260. So right. you know, that's a huge part of the process for me is just figuring out which player is worth it based on his costs. Or what I think his cost will be based on his average value.
0: Right. Um, and and how do you what do you pit that up against? I guess what is your overall ranking system? Like how do you get to a dollar value for a player? Are you using like a projection system to get there? Do you use projections or do you just looking at like some metrics and um, you know, how do you go about putting, I guess, a dollar value or ranking on a player? Sure.
1: Yeah. So I have, um, I do, I do my, my own profiles on every player. So I'll have the, the player's name, you know, his age, his team, what he's gone for in past auctions, where he hits in the lineup, um, the average auction value, and then all of his stats from the previous seasons, you know, the five categories you need. And then I throw in games at bats, a strikeout percentage his expected average, his average exit velocity barrel rate and his earned auction value from each previous season. So, and then below all the statistical stuff, I'll have, you know, a little profile of each player starting with their injury history and any other useful information I found on the player. So when I look at those profiles um, you know, I can see what a player earned in past seasons. It gives me a number, you know, I don't have to figure out how much was a Homer worth. How much is this deal worth? It just, you know, and you can find that information on fan graphs or, you know, Roto wire has pretty good earned auction values from previous seasons. So, you know, that's part of the process as far as if a player played a full season and he earned $20 and he's been doing it pretty consistently, I'm going to value that player roughly $20. Um, so, you know, that's kind of where I start is building the profiles uh, of all the players with that information. I just said,
0: That's awesome. Okay, so yeah, I mean those are those are good tools like you said, they're available um and they're definitely helpful in trying to get you know a dollar value for a player and you just punch in this you know the system and the rules and it's a good it, it's a good starting point. Um, and yeah, the AAV is, is is definitely something um that's extremely useful. Do you use it for even for like all the other, you like even the cheaper online leagues, or are you just looking at the high stakes AAV?
1: Um, I use mostly the high stakes AAV. If there's not enough drafts, then I'll expand it.
0: Right, you get a bigger data sample of um of drafts. Um, you you mentioned um something earlier. I I didn't want to forget about it, but when you were talking about playing in like a private league, a standalone versus like an overall, is there any strategy difference for you? when it comes to playing in each one of those leagues
1: yeah i approach them the same um and i know a lot of good players that you know if they're in an overall they will try to compete in all, all 10 categories and when they're in a standalone they'll punt either speed or, or saves or whatever it may be so that can vary from player to player but i try to treat every league i'm in trying to build the best team i can build and trying to be pretty pretty competitive in all the categories
0: yeah that makes sense i i really it's hard for me to just give up on one category i always feel like in my brain it's 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 detrimental to you know trying to win a league you know and like i guess i've always been burned when the categories i was supposed to be dominating in or winning in didn't win you know so you kind of get a little uh um Worried about doing that type of an approach, you know, because we're supposed to be getting your points or not. And obviously you have to review your process and see if you just didn't hit on the guys or just the, you know, the style didn't match the league or something like that. Sure. Um. So. What are some of your go to metrics? I heard you mentioned some K percentage, some barrel weights. Um. Is there anything out there that also too that you're like this is i've tried i tried to look at it but it's just too much like we were mentioning before like absorbing too much new information is there anything out there where you feel like this isn't impactful enough and i'm not going to get involved and also to like what what else if anything besides the k percentage and the bowel rates
1: um yeah i mean for me i use um average or average um, exit velocity. A lot of players use their exit velocity on fly balls and line drives, and it filters out some of the, the flares and the dribblers. But I kind of like to get a, a full, complete picture uh, of, a, of, a, of, you know, of, a, of the entire sample of the, of the hitter and his distribution. So, I, you know, I think that's important. You, you know, that's been the big leap, you know, when StatCast came along. Uh, what was it, six seven years ago? Giving us that data, so now we haven't. Now we can concretely say this player is hitting the ball harder than this player, and you can compare players based on that. So uh, you know, I love using um, exit velocities. Barrel rates are huge. I mean, you know, sixty percent of the time when you when you barrel the ball up, it's going to go over the fence. And of all homers, I think it's like eighty something come from barrels. So you can get an idea of what player is you know hitting that. 395 foot rocket that's getting caught right that's an out and it you know it's the same as a pop-up to the pitcher but i want to know who's hitting a lot of these 390 foot bombs that are getting caught and barrel rate gives me that if i can look at a player's barrel rate and maybe only 30 percent of his barrels went went for homers i can project that player to hit more home runs the next season so those two stats exit velocity barrel rate are huge um Uh, Expected average is helpful in a way, and I use it to kind of gauge, you know, whether a player over or underperformed with their batting average. So I'm just kind of trying to look at, you know, power, what players were lucky and unlucky and batting average, same, you know, with runs and ribbies, that's all context dependent team batting order. Um, So I try to keep it to a minimum. I really don't go beyond that as far as what I look at statistically.
0: That's, That's pretty tight window right there you got the biggest thing that you need and yeah I love how you mentioned like the barrels to home runs it's something that um Toby bat flip crazy um I don't know if you listened to his pod but I know you, I think I think you played in his league before right you guys played against each other
1: yeah absolutely um, yeah Toby's a great analyst
0: yeah he, he definitely is he's uh he was like one of my biggest inspiration you know when I started to podcast and Getting into listening to podcasts, he was he always had a um just a different way to look at the game, and I learned so much just listening to him. And yeah, I know he's a good good competitor, he's a great player, so and I know he talks about that in his podcast a lot. He references that, um, so I guess you, you listen to his podcast to try to, you know, I mean, if you're playing in a league with someone and he's got a podcast, you got to listen to it, right. <laughs>
1: yeah I, I actually I've never um taken in content to use it against my competitors um I don't even know who's in my leagues I don't even check the sign-up sheet to be honest so um for me I listen to you know to bat flip crazy with Bubba and the Batflip um just because it's great content right. um and I would never try to scout you know when you start scouting your opponents that's the time that you're wasting you should be spending on your draft plan and evaluating the player pool um so for me yeah i've never really um done any of that but i really appreciate all the content i mean his pod's great um spore and mason have a really good one uh, with sleeper and the boss and i you know frank stample does a lot of good work with cbs so you know i think part of it is kind of living and breathing fantasy if you want to be successful at this and i have my podcast going in the car when i'm driving my kids to the basketball practice instead of listening to uh you know justin bieber or whatever right <laughs> so it's kind yep. of you know put getting as much content as you can and stuffing it all into a day um
0: absolutely i feel the same way in the car i'm taking a walk um i got my earpods on and and i'm listening to podcast. you know it's uh it just helps. It just helps all it's it's just it's great. You know, I love absorbing as much as I can of it. But yeah, I think you make a great point. Like um again, like trying to scout your league mates and you it's it's a lot of work, you know. Um like even even trying to reference if if I'm you know in my fourth draft champions and um I pull up my three draft boards and I see, you know, there's there's three or four players in my league even then like just trying to see who they quote unquote may like or may pick at a certain spot like you said it just takes time and it's just you're you're taken away from just going your own route and doing your own thing um and I like I said I try to reference it and use it like oh this guy's on the on the wheel and this is who we might like and maybe I'll take this guy here so when you know, he takes these two plays that he took before. I'll get this player at the next pick, and it just doesn't work. <laughs> you know, it's just too much. Just do your own thing, and it'll work out.
1: Yeah, absolutely for sure.
0: So, what do you do with injury analysis? Um, you're you're not on Twitter, so you don't know the the um, <laughs> there's a, there's a bevy of injury experts out there for the fantasy baseball game that try to imprint their knowledge upon us and uh it doesn't really work all the time but what's your go-to source and like do you use how do you try to project that into I guess someone's injury history versus how you you know how you're um evaluating him for the upcoming year
1: yeah absolutely that's it's super important because when you're in these deeper leagues these 15 team leagues if you lose your starting shortstop now you're using a bench spot for that injured player and you gotta scoop someone off waivers and you're half the time you're going to be taking practically zeros from that spot. Like in these deeper leagues, you can't afford to stack up injuries. Right. So I think evaluating players, it really starts with their injury history. That's the first part of every profile I do on a player is his injury history, going back to all the way. And even if I can find some stuff in high school, I'll throw it in there. Right. So, so when I'm, when I'm trying to figure out who I'm going to buy, like who are my big bats, right? Who am I going to target? I'm always going to take durability into account. I'm never going to target a player with a checkered injury history um, to be a cornerstone of my team. Um, I want tough players. I don't want soft players. I want players that are working hard in the off season that are conditioned that are, are training, right? Not just players that are doing BP. Right. And you can tell who is working hard in the off season. Who's not by their injury history, right? If a player is stacking up 160 game seasons back to back to back you know, that player is working hard. He's lifting weights, he's running, right? If a player is pulling his quad and he's pulling his calf and he's, and he's pulling his hammy and his oblique, right? That player is not lifting weights in the off season, right? He's not working hard on his physical conditioning and he can't make it through a 160 game season, right? There's, you know, those are preventable injuries, those, those muscle pulls. So if I see a player with a history of muscle pulls and muscle strains, right? I'm probably going to be very low on that player, much lower than the public. And I'm probably going to fade that player. Right. And you also have to consider what injuries were preventable and which ones were unlucky. Like if a player gets beamed by a fastball and, and, and breaks his, his finger and he's out for six weeks, I'm not going to hold that against the player. Right. That's just bad luck. That can happen to anybody. Right. So, you know, trying to like maneuver around what players were a little bit unlucky with some of the things that happened. Maybe they aren't so injury prone because there's a couple of broken bones that were just tough luck things versus, you know, repeated history of muscle pulls, which is, you know, not good. Um, so, yeah, again, you know, I think it's very important to build your team around tough, dependable, durable players that you can count on, especially when you're paying big money for them in auctions or your first, you know, five to ten picks in a, in a snake
0: yeah that's definitely huge like you said especially when you're if they're gonna be uh a big bid or high pick you can't really start that foundation with someone who's brittle and um it's a great point that you made you know like a lot of I think a lot of what we attribute to guys not playing, you know, like 162, 160 consistently. Is that because of like load management, or the team just you know wants to rotate its players? But maybe it's just that a lot of these guys aren't as conditioned as they could be. You know, like you said, like that's why it's, a, it's it's pretty impressive. Like you know, Marcus Simeon, Danby Swanson, these guys um, they're in the game for 160 games a year. You know, getting 700 plate appearances, and like you said, they could you could tell just by that, that they're not, you know, they're not um, taking for granted their bodies and what makes them get paid. You know,
1: that's a good point. I mean, it's important because if a player played say 140 games and it could, and you don't know who the players, you're just looking at a stat line, 140 games, 500 at bats, whatever it was, did that player platoon? And, you know, did he miss a little time or did that player have a, you know, three week stint on the DL, right? Because if that player, didn't go on the DL and he didn't change his situation. He's with the same team. You could probably project 140 games max the next season. But if that player was in a DL for a month, you know, you could probably project more like 160, right? So that's another thing that you really need to look at because you have to kind of fill in the blanks with the, with the, every player's line, like what they did the previous season, whether the missed time was based on being, you know, platooned or injured.
0: Yep. Totally agree with that. It's why I, you know, when I think the last, the most recent guy I was looking at where I kind of like, well, I think, oh, I think it was Mookie Betts, um, you know, played 142 games last year, but I didn't realize that he missed like a little over two weeks with an injury in June, you know, um, upon quick glance. And just, I didn't have him on any of my teams last year. So I didn't remember that, but, you know, just looking at the plate appearances and, uh, the projected ones. I found it interesting. I caught that he missed two weeks, still played 142 games. So, um, just a good athlete too. I think we know about that, about Mookie. He plays multiple sports and he can, uh, he can take care of himself. So it's, uh, I think that's so big. I think that's definitely a big thing that you have to, to analyze because there's, there's players out there in the public that you could see putting in the work too. And it doesn't mean that they're doing it every day, but um, you see some guys are more willing to put in the work to stay great. um, For sure.
1: Yeah, absolutely. If I, you know, if I had access to every player's, you know, Instagram and I was following every single player, I would know who's working hard, but I don't, I just have the stats to go on. So, you know, you know, who's been durable, who's done it in the past. That's, that's more or less how I give them credit.
0: Yep totally makes sense um so i think if uh i wanted to ask you before i move on to um just straight auction talk i guess what is the is there any difference to you when you bouncing from a 15 league a 15 team league to a 12 team league is there any different approach in terms of like roster build um or anything
1: Yeah, totally. Um, I'm much more likely to go superstars and scrubs in a 12 team league where the replacement level value is much higher. Um, And when, once you get to the 15 teamer, that's when you need to be much more conscious of, you know, of getting the right types of players that are more on the durable side. Um, And it doesn't mean you don't take shots on injury prone players, but that you want that to be in the back end of, of your of your draft or the one to five dollar type of player, um, in my opinion. So yeah, I, you know, I'm I'm more likely to buy the best catcher in a twelve team league, for example, um, you know that type of thing. And um, but yeah, it just has to do with the, the replacement level value.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So it's um, it's totally different mindset, and I know people who decide to take one route or the other you know, and playing all 12s or all 15s. Um, I think I'm getting a little better at 12s. My big problem when I first started was uh, that I was holding on to the guys too long, you know? Um, fringe players, like, I think two years ago, my best example was Ian Hap. I had so much more expectations of him. and But I just, in my 15-team brain, it was like, I'm not dropping Ian Happ. And in the 12-team league, in, in reality, I should have been cycling out that spot for, you know, better, better guys off the wire. And even just, you know, just maximizing, um, it through streaming. Uh, so I think that was my biggest lesson, but, um, what about for like, do you notice ever if there's like a position or something that has better values or is easier to, um, approach like in a 15 team league versus a 12 team league?
1: Um, you mean the player positions? like?
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, yeah, uh, you know, I, I've kind of started to build around, you know, having stronger catchers. Um, that's, you know, what Perez did a couple of years ago and what JT's been doing. Um, the, it's difference-making. You don't see it with their final line, but when you compare the team that got JT Real Muto – And then they took Brian Reynolds for a dollar and you compare that team to the team that got, you know, the $15 outfielder and the $1 catcher, right. It's the team with JT is, 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 getting the better statistical line, right. For the same cost. So, um, you know, for me, it's, it's very hard to find a good one to $2 catcher. You know, they're, they're almost non-existent versus other positions. You know, you can usually find some outfielders, some corner infielders, You know, every once in a while, there'll be a middle infielder, Um, but dang, it's, that's the one spot you almost have to pay unless you want to take on some sort of batting average sinkhole, um, which I don't want to do. You know, I can, and you know, every draft is different, but ideally I would rather get good catchers, um, you know, as part of my build with, with the two big arms, um, two closers. And then, um, you know, I kind of treat first through outfield more or less the same um, nowadays before like 10 years ago there's a big difference because the you know the middle infielders couldn't hit or right? they couldn't hit for power these days they do so I treat them more or less the same as as any other position
0: definitely makes sense um I sleep better at night too when I have good good catches <laughs> I know you can definitely win in every single way as a, with approaching catchers. But I feel like I end up liking my team better. My teams do better when I get those two catchers that just, I don't have to worry about fabbing anybody. They're just in there just consistently giving you an edge. Um, cause obviously, you know, we'll have our holes, um, in our teams, but I don't like to have it, uh, at the catcher position.
1: I totally agree.
0: Yeah, yes, definitely. Um, my my best um my best teams this year. Well, in the past two years, have included, you know, Sal P and and JTR. I took them. I think in back to back rounds in my online championship, and they were just great. They just, you know, you don't have to take them out, and they just give you like the biggest edge, uh, and such comfort. Um, when you when you're doing multiple auctions, I guess do you. Do you um? I know you mentioned going more stars and scrubs with the twelve, but going back to the fifteen, do you, if you have four or five different auction drafts, will you have a different approach to each one in terms of like st- uh, stars and scrub versus spreading it more out, or it's just one way or the other?
1: Um, yeah. So that could be a tricky thing where you know you have some auctions that are um, you know, two weeks before the season, and then you have another group that are are one week before the season. Right. Um, so my plan can change from one week based on, you know, some things that are happening in the spring, um, and stuff. Um, so my plan is fluid, you know, every day I'm, I'm always, you know, on Roto world, looking at all the information that's coming in and, and, and the spring box scores and stuff like that. Um, and it can change my mind on a player if I see a certain type of thing. So my plan's fluid. Um, but for the most part, um, I don't change it up too much from draft to draft. Um, Once I have, you know, if a certain type of thing doesn't go the way I want it to go in the first draft or two, uh, I I may reevaluate where I want to, you know, and make, you know, a significant change here or there. Um, You know, I guess one example I can remember, um, in 2019, um, I was was targeting Yelich. you know, it was the year coming off his huge year. And, um, you know, he was going for about 37 on average. I was planning on paying 38 or 39 for him. And I got in the draft and, you know, Cerebro sitting across from me and, and I go 38, he goes 39. I go 40, he goes 41. I go 42, he goes 43. And I let him go at that point. Right. Um, so, you know, and then I went on to my alternates. Um, so after that draft and I took that one in and and I, and then I saw that Cerebro was in my next auction. Right. So, I planned around not getting Ellich at that point. I knew mm-hmm. that he wasn't going to be a part of, of my team. So, you know, that type of thing can, can change your, your, um your, you know, your plan when you know you're not going to get a certain type of guy um, based on what happened in, in a previous draft. Um, but yeah. Um,
0: yeah. That's, that's a good point. That's just, I guess you, again, that's just being aware too of what's happening and just instantly, knowing you know that you you have to pivot you know yeah for sure yeah um when you go stars and scrubs is there like a, a stars and scrubs within the stars and scrubs like do you t- um maybe go more stars and scrub with pitchers and spread out the hitters or vice versa i don't know if that makes sense to um that question
1: yeah, yeah, sure. Um yeah, usually um you know, usually I have I want, you know, the back end of my rotation I understand is going to be like the 1 to 2 dollar guys, probably two of them. Um and then you'll probably have three to four hitters that you're planning on taking for a buck or two, right? Um and so you know, and then having the guys that you want and then the alternates to that's important. Um but
0: um it's, but, right, it's, it's, no no that's great i i mean i think um i think like my approach to, i don't know if this will be yours but you're having you have every position noted as with a range that you want to be going for right or like any you got your big guys you got your your end games and then you're trying to fill out that middle with, I guess, do you think you have more choices in the middle group than you do at the top and the bottoms, like with your, uh, you know, like the $10, the $15 players?
1: Yeah. I mean, let me, uh, let me pull up my draft plan from, um, let's see if I can find it from last year and see, see what I, see what I did. Let's see.
0: I think you had some Merrill Kelly last year, right? Was that one of your? Yeah, more... so yeah.
1: He was he was one of my um one of my one dollar Yeah. Yep. Yep. So I had um I had Tristan McKenzie. I had Lazardo, Ober, Rasmussen, um, Cortez, El- Eliezer Hernandez. Um, so I was planning on getting you know two of that group, and then I had you know Joe Ryan, uh, Alex Wood. Uh, Luis Garcia, two of that group. And then I was planning on getting Burns and Sandy. And then if I didn't get them, Max Scherzer, Freed, Logan Webb, Verlander, right? So two of that group. So that's kind of how I built my plan, you know, more or less. So I had the, the, the guys that I wanted, then the alternates at the high price point, the guys that I wanted and the alternates at the mid price point, the guys that I wanted and the alternates at the bottom price point. Um, and so that's what my, my plan looks like at each position. Um, that's, at first base, for example, I was planning yeah. on getting Nate Lowe, um, and Christian Walker, Frank Schwindel and Bobby Dalback were my first alternates. Um, and then like we talked about earlier, I'm definitely not opposed to taking someone that I like if I can get the right price as right. the draft is going, I don't just sit and wait for like my primary
0: targets. Yeah, you, yeah, you can't you can't wait around right too long to start grabbing guys, especially if they're going for good prices. Um, so you, so you basically, I'm guessing you have a a shorter list. Like, did you don't take an account f- for the whole player pool, like on your list? You just got your your primary, like, total control drafting list. This is this is what I'm getting. This is what I'm walking out of the room with. Right. Yeah.
1: So I go into the draft with the entire player pool in all of their bios, sorted by position and sorted by ADP. So I have all the first basemans sorted by ADP. And as they're drafted, I'll cross them off and, you know, note what they went for. Um, and then I have a separate sheet with my targets. And, you know, the guys that are in green are my primary targets. The yellow are my secondary targets. And the guys that are white are the are the third tier targets at each position. Um, so I'm looking to, if I don't get my green guy, I'm looking to get at least one of those yellow guys. Right. And then if things don't go quite my way, it'll be one of the, the, the players that are white on my draft list. So, um, that's kind of how my, my plan works, um, and how I, you know, enter a draft and that's what's more or less what, what's in front of me as I'm drafting is, is the, are those sheets.
0: Nice. Yeah. So when, when I saw you drafting this year in New York, I think I walked into the middle uh, of one of the auction drafts and um, you know, like me not knowing everyone by face, I know, I knew some people, I you know I'm reading the name tags and uh, and then I was like, Oh, it's like I saw literally hundreds of pages in front of you and you were like cutting them out, like cutting them out and crossing off things and moving them around uh i found it fascinating because everyone is you know in their computers um like myself but even when i do my home league i still do the old pen like pencil and paper and i just love it because there's just something about it but what's what's that about is is there a method for that or is that just like a like an easier way for you to keep track of everything
1: well, yeah, I think it's important to have as much information at your disposal when you're making these split second decisions on a player. You know, do I go that extra dollar? Um, and if you just have a player's name, you know, but I can get to whatever I want to get. Well, what have they done in the spring, right? Um, what have they earned in previous seasons? Whatever I want to look at in that moment, I can I can look at it. How many bombs did it hit last year? Whatever it is. So, um, you know, when you have to make these calls going once, going twice and everything it can come down to it's like split second decisions. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it's important to have certain, you know, as much helpful information in front of you as you can get to make the right decision. Um, So that's kind of why I, um, you know, have a more like, you know, I, 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 I guess it's a pretty unique approach. Most people come in, but I, I think it's just, it doesn't matter whether whose approach is right or wrong. It's, you know, the important thing is having a plan, having an approach, trying to figure out what you want in front of your face as you're making the decisions on draft day. And, you know, you know, giving that some thought um, and giving as much thought as you can to your planning of the draft and how, how you want it to go. Um, you know, and not just walking in with a list. Um, you may be a little unprepared um, if you don't, you know, if you're going against um a certain type of player that is a little more prepared right so it's um i know it, just you know just more or less trying to um get at I think it's adju- great man i think it's yeah. great
0: i think i think you just gave the best advice that i've ever heard on my pod just you have to know you have to have whatever it is in front of you that you know you want and put put that time into it Cause if you, if you're there and you're fidgeting around and you don't know where to go to, if you want to look at something real quick or real fast, so you don't have a solid approach. If you have too many tabs in your computer open and you are just like bouncing around, you know um, you have to, that's great. Just have that, know what you're going to go to. Know You can go straight to a page and it has everything on that page of that player that you need to see instantly.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, the things I look at the most are their, you know, their average auction value. So what can I expect that bidding to get to roughly? And then, you know, the spring stats can be super helpful, too. I mean, spring, you know, we had the abbreviated ones in the past, but usually they're, you know, a month long. It ends up being a pretty, you know, significant sample size at the end of the day for anyone that plays an entire spring. So, you know, if I see a pitcher through 20 innings and he's got, you know, 25 Ks and two walks, I may go the extra buck for that type of player. Right. And I can't memorize everyone's spring stats, right? That's crazy. So, um,
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's for sure. And now this year we'll have the World Baseball Classic to throw in there as a, as a, as some kind of gauge of player performance. Um, I don't know. You, it kind of, I would kind of think that you'd really get to see where a player's at in his conditioning then, because it, it, I mean, you're probably gonna go all out, right? if you're playing for your country yeah absolutely for sure (laughs) i mean i would think so you know (laughs) i don't know how some of those teams feel about you know their players leaving to play um but i guess they'll have to be probably more in game shape quicker than some of the spring training guys right um
1: yeah any additional stats we get going in is, is is helpful for sure so yeah looking forward to it
0: yep me too um Absolutely. So nominations, do you have a strategy to it and when to call guys out or you just picking um, guys down your list that you either want to see on your team or, off, you know, into the player pool?
1: Yeah, sure. That's a big, big part of the battle. Right. Um, I think there is really no right or wrong strategy, but the important thing is to have a strategy, right? Um, For me, if I, I kind of like play it by ear in the moment. If I, if kuna gets called and I expect him to go for 40 and he goes for 45 and then Betts gets called and I expect him to go for 35 and he goes for 40, you know, I may call out Soto, right? If I don't necessarily want Soto because I can expect him to go maybe a little bit more than his a- average value is, right? That's so, and then vice versa, you get an, an hour in and players start going below what they usually go for. That's when you want to nominate a guy you really want, right? So um, there's times to nominate someone you want. Sometimes you don't want to nominate someone you want. Um, and another thing is to really manage the players that you want and making sure they're called out before they're the last player in their specific tier, right? Because it's supply and demand. If you have your player that you're dying to get, right, and you know there's maybe three, you know, three stud third baseman left, and you really want um, Arenado or whatever it is, right? you want to get him out there before the other two, right? Because if you, if Brian gets called out and you let him go because you're waiting for Arenado, and then the other one gets called out and you're you're letting him go because you're waiting to get to your guy and then you get in a bidding war for your guy, now what are you going to do? You're either going to overpay for your guy or you're going to have to let him go and lose out on that tier that you're trying to buy from, right? So Mm -hmm. there's there's definitely um, some strategy involved as far as most of the bidding wars happen with the last player available at a specific tier, whether it's the last stud ace or, or whatever it is. Um, and you don't want your targets to be the last ones called.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Cause then you get into a mess and um, being able to see that and, and know where those drop-offs are. is so big, you know? Um, Cause if you don't, and then you're just working into that next tier blindly and like overpaying. Now you're overpaying maybe a completely lesser player, you know, than that guy above where you could have like spent up on that, but st- still be better off, you know, because um, it's a better player. Absolutely. Yeah. So you, you ever happen in a draft where like more of the lower price players get called out first and there's still, I guess, a lot of the bigger you know dollar players out there um because i've been in draft where that has happened and again it's just like i guess realizing that 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 it is happening and being able to adjust accordingly
1: yeah yeah that could be you know tricky when someone calls out um you know a player is supposed to go for a buck or two and then, you know, you're hoping to buy someone much better than that. And you you wish that player was left in the player pool just in case you need them later. So usually it can be tricky whether you want to get in on that type of guy or not, you know, depending on whether you were targeting him. Um, yeah. So but most of the auctions, typically, they go from top to bottom, the high price to the low price. And just a little bit of that sprinkled in of what you're talking about.
0: Right. Right. Do you like do any calculation for like if the player pool available, uh, I guess like an inflation, um, watch, like just to see if the available left to be, you know, drafted versus the money already drafted is off. And then you can account for that or you just do everything like by feel, like you'll know it by just being in the draft.
1: Yeah. I, um, I kind of do everything by feel more or less. Um, you know, know the numbers are going to add up at the end of the day, right? So if someone pays an extra five bucks over value for a certain type of player, then someone's going to go for $5 cheaper later. So it all evens out. Um, So, you know, it it can be, um, it, it can be tricky because you may come into a draft hoping to get a certain type of stud at a certain type of position and you maybe you get there and your opponents just don't let it go right you're spending five six seven dollars more than you wanted to um and then you have to you could be stubborn and you can just be that guy that you know you can just say i'm getting my guy no matter what right my approach has typically been to let that go and find my value elsewhere um and so and if a certain type of draft And you can get into different type of drafts, right? Some of the drafts, a lot of the players in the room will be targeting the mid-tier guys, and you can get some good value with the studs, right? That's when I'll draft a few studs, even if I wasn't planning on it necessarily. But if I'm in a draft where everyone wants the studs and the studs are going for more than they should, that's when I'll get more of a balanced team. Um, So a lot of the times I go into a draft, I do have my plan, but I let the draft come to me and uh, I, I don't try to fight it and it, yeah just take what I can get take what it gives me
0: are you ever working toward uh like a total stat line like a, a drafted stats that you want like are you saying like I need act like I'd, I'd like to draft about 280 homers or you know ejected or is there is it like I guess a lot of people use like the 80th percentile target or something is that something you use
1: yeah, sure. I use the eighth percentile. So my goal is to get like yeah. a two seventy average, roughly three hundred fifty bombs, one hundred twenty steals, um, and so I am conscious if I buy. Oh, I always have a plan for speed. How am I going to address speed? Um, who's my primary target? Usually, I try to target some some sort of rabbit that I think can give me forty to fifty, right? So I can build around those four category bats that always are undervalued in auctions. Um, so I usually plan around doing that and sometimes i won't find a rabbit i like and and, in a certain year the plan will be different but um but i think that's you know kind of eyeballing your batting average writing down the projected stat line of any player you draft is important right because then during breaks you can check okay i have a bunch of 290 hitters i can afford to take you know an adam dunn or whatever or you look at it and you say dang i'm a little light on on power here or I'm a little light on speed. Right. So um, being able to check what, how you, how your team is coming together um, is, is, is super important and um, and can definitely affect some of your later draft decisions.
0: Are you um, how are you anticipating, I guess the um, a, the ball being, you think they're going to be the same. Do you even try to worry about that? And also the new rule changes do I think I'm anticipating a couple more rabbits than we've usually had. You know, I think, yeah, be... a lot. Yeah,
1: yeah. I think, I think stolen bases will be up, no doubt. Um, so, but I, I don't think it'll be too significant. So I'm not really changing my projections necessarily, right? Um, based on, on any of the rule changes,
0: right? I kind know, of like, the, like, the The main event, 80th percentile came down, you know, like I think in every league it came down a little bit. Are you still shooting for like a specific, like, a, I guess, how would you blend the target? Are you always using last year's or do, are you using like maybe a couple of different seasons to get a more different approach? Um, so it it, de- it depends. It's kind
1: of a, you know, a, a, a case by case basis on a, on a particular player. Um, cause like you can't use last year's stats on a guy if he missed half the year with an injury, right? So, yeah, um, so you know, it's you know projections, it's kind of um, it, it's a lot of just feel um as far as when I'm looking at a player's past stat line um and to try to gauge what he's gonna do this this particular season with, but then you have to factor in the fact that not all players will progress season to season the same right typically hitters will get a little bit better until they get to like age 28 and then they'll get like a little bit worse I mean, every once in a while you'll have someone that makes a drastic change like batista did and start hitting like tons of fly balls but that's a little bit rarer with the hitters but when you look at the pitchers anyone can make a big change and it can happen fast you could be a 35 year old pitcher if you get with the right coach if you get the right new pitch or the right pitch mix or the right mechanical adjustment you can go from you know Corbin Burns to Corbin Burns the next season right you can make these massive jumps so with with the pitchers I look at the very recent sample sizes um, especially with velocity changes that can impact a pitcher right and with hitters I look at more of what they've done in the past three to five years right I I go back a lot further with the hitters Mm -hmm. uh, when I'm looking at how to how I want to address them and project them
0: that makes total sense yeah it's and are you quick to like buy into a pitcher when you see something changing like how quick do you need to be like this is real or now that we have like we could see instant instant you know changes just by looking at the savant feed like you could pounce quicker
1: sure yeah if i see a tangible change and give me 30 innings for a pitcher um you know, it, it can happen that fast. It can happen in season. It can happen in the off season. Um, yep. And you got to catch these things. I think when you're monitoring the players in the, sp- in the spring, I think it's super important to really focus in on what the pitchers are doing. It could be tricky though, because not every pitcher is giving their max effort. Some of them like Bauer, for example, will throw like 30 curve balls in a row or whatever. Right. So, but most of them are trying to prepare and giving their best effort. And when you can take what they're doing, their spin rates and, and the results and whatnot. And once it gets to, you know, it gets to be a pretty significant amount of innings in the spring. So um, I, you know, I think, I think you really have to look for those things because that's when you'll find, you know, the Rodones and the Robbie rays, the guys that mm-hmm. make these massive leaps season yep. to season. Um, and those are the league winners.
0: Yeah, absolutely. got to be more willing to do that these days, I think, because the information is there. And to me, um, you don't want to get stuck with, like, a gut feeling that you had, like, wasted, you know. You, you don't want to see it and feel it and believe it and then just not go for that player. You know, got to just act. Because, you know, if you're wrong in season, you know, on – and you know, not spend that much fab. You could just move on. You could forget about it and be like, okay, I was wrong on that person, but you don't want to be right and not go for them, you know? For sure. So the end game strategies, you know, I know you're you're talking about getting your your, your cheaper players. Do you plan to have X amount of dollars for the end of the draft, you know, having like 10 bucks for your last five players or something like that?
1: um yeah yeah usually i plan on roughly about that to be honest um you know 10 for five is pretty much a dream for me usually it's more like five bucks for five players me too. To <laughs> um yeah you know but i think what's more important than like worrying about like that budget is trying to pick those type of players out beforehand right so um so you know where you're going when you're in that spot um because that the, those players make the difference. You know those. You know everyone's. You know if you draft a durable type of hitter, he's going to give you what you pay for, more or less, right? You're going to win your league by hitting on the one to five dollar guys. Like, so my advice would be to spend a lot of your time on that type of. You know it's fun to look at what Vlad's doing and, and look at his profile, right? But you're probably better off spending more of your time on the back end of the player pool um that's yep. where you're that's where you're going to get your advantage and win, and win your league
0: absolutely and, and i think like um doing doing some draft champions um i'm in one right now and actually i just finished one right now and my first one since i tried a whole bunch of these new gladiator things that they that they threw out there so it's was getting back into draft champions mode and looking at the deeper end of the player pool and Um, like the outfield position, I think it's a little more platoon heavy once you get into a certain part of the ADP. So it's been, it's been tricky trying to navigate through it and not having a plan to get, you know, good outfielders and volume early. So been looking at, you know, different spots of the, of, of ADP and I guess, because I want to do more of auctions this year. I've been trying to prepare at the same time, just at least mentally note where some of the players are going. And if like they're a good $1 or cheap candidates, you know, and I already got an early favorite in outfield. I'm going to give this to everyone, but Jorge Soler, you know, he's like three thirty ADP. And I just feel like if he's going to be a $1 outfielder for power, you know, he's the kind of guy I'd be, you know, he's one of like the first ones I've identified in my brain that I've noted that this uh, it could be. Obviously, things will change when it gets closer to the season, but um, I'm trying to prepare as I go for you know all all leagues, not just pay attention to the draft I'm doing, trying to see if the kind of player can help me elsewhere. You know,
1: sure, yeah, I, I second that. I love that call on solar. It's important because a lot of those one dollar outfielders will be platoon players, like you said, right? So best case scenario, they play 120 games. I want to win, yeah, I wanna have the most at bats in, in my entire league, right? Yep. I want every single one of my 14 bats to be an everyday player. So um ha, you know, I I I fade most of the platoon players, the lefties that sit versus lefties. I fade those type of guys. So Finding an everyday guy like like Soler at the, at the dollar, you know, th- those are the type of guys I'm looking for that can, if they spike health, can play 160.
0: Yep. Yeah. And I think that's what I realized when I looked at his player log. And actually, um, I don't know if you like get the baseball forecasted by Baseball HQ, but they had this cool l- little new dive into playing time and like cool charts, I guess, to see how many weeks the guy was active, how many starts he had that week, and how many play the parents. Just so you could see instantly if he's kind of a platoon guy or he's often injured and hilarious missed time. But when he was in there, he never came out. You know, he obviously he's the most expensive guy on a shitty offense. So he's going to have to play. <laughs> uh, but
1: um, there's a lot of value. to be found those, the three, four, five hitter on the bad team, right? The you know the christian walker last year right that's you're gonna find that's because you know opportunities have to battle right if right you're buried in the eight hole (laughs) it's gonna take a a lot of luck to get what you need but if you've got a guy that's hitting third or fourth and he and he stays healthy and he's got that type of power pedigree in his past um those are the type of players that can be 15 20 players that you get for a dollar and and that's
0: yeah, that's what you're looking for for sure. Good, good call on the bad teams too, because they they're also um, they're they're not trying to win as much. So those guys that get stuck in those spots have a little bit more of a leash because the team's not trying to like maximize their war every game, you know.
1: <laughs> Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Um. So, what is your Fab strategy? What's your Fab style? I guess are you are you not afraid to pay up, or do you have like a calculated approach? I guess to you know, what you want to have um, to spend each week.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm pretty aggressive with fab because if you hit like a home run early on, you get that guy for like the whole season, right? If you hit like with a month left, you know, it could certainly put you over the top, but you know, the difference making pickups are the ones you make in the first, you know, month or two. So I'm, I'm very, very aggressive with my fab. I'm usually one of the, you know, I usually have like the least amount of money left after the first couple months. Um and then I just kind of like try to make it work the best I can from there on out.
0: Yeah, that's that's a good way to do it. Um, I've gotten burned a couple of times in the last couple of years, so I've been I've been more prone to like be more calculated and. But it's helped, but it hasn't helped. Um, <laughs> I feel like it's it's making me more disciplined, but also, um, not that he went for a super high uh, amount in fab, but. Yeah, I didn't get into a lot of the more impactful players because of that reason. So where I may have had like more to choose and spread out, I didn't really get those impact bats where um or like a Spencer Strider, you know, I wasn't aggressive enough with someone like him. Um I spent too much on Vinny P and Fab this year. I thought he was gonna be he was good. He was a good he was a good hitter, but he wasn't what my team needed I needed a little more power than what he gave me but uh
1: sure yeah the first or second week last year I picked up Daniel Bard on all my teams Oh, nice. I wasn't gonna lose him I I spent like 150 maybe 180 on him and I you know and there's some leagues I could have gotten for 40 right so I overspent a significant chunk in some spots but there was that one league that I needed to bid 150 to get him right because the next bid was 130 and you know so that was that was a massive pick and I wasn't I was happy to blow 20% of my budget the way I felt about that type of player um, at that, at that time. Right. And getting the whole season out of him was huge. I picked up Kirby in the diamond and that was massive for me. Cause I, yeah. to Grom, um, you know, for a significant chunk of the season. So getting any starting pitching was huge for me last year in the, in the diamond auction.
0: So you had the Grom on that team that came in first in the diamond auction. And yeah. so, yeah. So, wow. That's so, yeah, my season could not have started out any worse. I drafted
1: him <laughs> and then I went home and like the next day the report came out that he had the, the sore arm, right? So Uh-oh. I was like, oh, here we go.
0: <laughs> oh man, that's such a gut punch. But, and did you, obviously you kept him on your team the whole year.
1: Yes. Yes. Yeah. this you know, yeah. stretch run was huge for me, Um yeah. but I hit on, you know, I had Tony Gonsolin as one of my $1 targets. He hit, I had Kelly. Um, I missed out on a couple of my $1 guys that would have been difference makers. But, um, you know, I, and then that's another thing. Like when you go pocket aces, like one goes down, at least you have a little bit of uh you can stay alive. Right. And
0: mm. if,
1: if you just put it all on one guy or you punt starting pitching, right. You know, I'd, it's tough. It's tough. So, you know, I think that's, you know, another reason why it's important to, to double up.
0: Let's um, go pitches. That
1: that high-end tier.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It makes so much sense. And I know Toby always mentioned that too, that you always have that safeguard that the second one will just keep you afloat, you know? Yeah. hundred uh, percent. Right. Like. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's definitely, I think the biggest thing when I do it is just, I feel so much safer that obviously you're not expecting, you know, Garrett Cole, the bust or, you know, uh, Corbin Burns, but, um, any, I guess, even any fluctuation in their performance where maybe it's still good. It's not a bust pick, but it's not that ideal pick. You still have that second guy to, you know, make that buffer. The the ADP this year was pretty interesting because there's a bunch of pitchers that uh, I guess some would be comfortable with having as their one twos like in the 60s and 70s, you know, because um, I think everyone <laughs> getting a little nervous about offense and filling it out because of the dead end ball. But you have a whole bunch of these gems just sitting in a in a great range of, uh, you know, ADP. I'm sure that's going to bump up a little bit in March, but looking at it now, compared to, you know, I was looking at ADP at this time of year in draft champions last year. So the early draft and it was it was not like this. Was, the pitching was more flooded up top than it is now.
1: Yeah, the aces are undervalued, no doubt. If these prices stay the same, I'll be buying three for sure, no, no question.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting. It's, uh it's yeah, I feel the same way. Yeah, it's, it's, Cause like last year, I know when I did my um, like my cheaper auction league, I, I wanted, I tried to get like three three twenty to twenty five dollar pitchers and have like maybe even one in that fifteen to eighteen range. You know, I really wanted like good, healthy options. And, um, but even if you could pay up just a little bit more or stay in that same range and have more guys to choose from, because last year it was a bunch of, I think, um, guys in that range that was getting the prices bumped up a little bit more than I wanted to, like the Galsman and the Caesars, because there was only them in that range. Now there's more pitchers in that range. So, um, it can be fun, me fun pickings. Um, yeah, so. I don't know if you remember the end of the 2021 auction championship. I helped Phil do so that year, um, draft the team. And um, so I, fo- I was following that team along pretty closely. But you guys were battling for the overall um, with a few weeks left. And know you had some risky, here's what I remember, you had some risky two-star pitchers in that last week. And um, my guess is that you did the math and you realized you needed to take some risks. To win it, but I remember I was just wondering if you can recall that at all. Um and also talk about like closing out not only a league, but like an overall that you're chasing and um like how much are you trying to do outside of your team? I know you're big on focusing on what you can control, but are you looking at the other teams around you as well or just your team?
1: Yeah, totally. i a hundred percent that one still stings to be honest. Um when you get that late in the season and and you're right in the, you know, you're in the top five of an overall um, that is when you should hundred percent start to be looking at where you can make the jump. What stats can you really make that next, you know, get that push to potentially win the overall. And for me, it was, you know, it was the the starting pitching, the K's, the wins, because um, I, um, I had a rough, Oh man, I drafted such a good team and um, I was planning on taking either Maeda or Burns, right. Maeda got called first. And I, uh, I bid on them at the same time as someone else. And that was my stopping point, right? It wasn't going a penny higher. No one else went, right? So we got to a coin flip. And I th- like in my gut, I was like, I hope I lose this flip. I'd rather have Burns anyways, right? And of course, I won the flip. Burns went a little bit later for a really nice price. And I knew that I blew it with that particular pick, like instantly. Um, and it ended up costing me the overall, because if I had you know, Maeda went down and Burns had a massive year and that was the one, you know, the, the spot I needed to beat, um,
0: mm. to be
1: filled that year. So that one stings, but yeah, my, my end game was a t- totally to, you know, I, I needed to make something happen. He was, he was ahead of me pretty significantly.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I guess, um, as one thing I really, again, like choosing, choosing your time wisely and, um, just trying to like move up and down move up the standings in the main event leagues. I just really, you know, you really have to spend that time to see what you're going to need. Cause um, realistically you can make a good path for your own team, but if you don't realize what other teams have around you, you know, um, I think my main two years ago, I realized that the guys in front of me had in saves that they were pretty decent away, but they had stopped using you know, three or two, like they were both down to one because they had a cushion and I was well off in K's and wins. So I just like started putting in five relievers, six relievers, like just spec guys on top of closes as well. And I made up like four points in, in, uh, and, you know, it helped me out and winning that league. But if you don't look at that, you know, you can't just Make blind attempts to gain points if you're not looking at the rosters of other teams as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it's and it's all there, you know, which is great. But um, this was awesome, man. I really appreciate you taking out the time to do this. Um, I know the, the community, um, in which we play in, Uh, you know, I've was talking to a lot of people, and you know, they're like, this, this will be your, this will be the biggest one. Like, we need to hear. Him, you know, on a pod, and um, when I reached out to uh, you know, Greg to get in contact with you, um, it was it, it was super cool that you reached out back, and um, I really do appreciate it, man. This is um, I know a lot of people don't like to talk about process and want to keep things close to the chest, but you, you gave such such good stuff here, man. I really do appreciate it.
1: Yeah, listen, anytime, Rob. I really uh, thanks for having me, and um, I you know I think it's important to give back if you want to be, you know, it's a tight knit community, the fantasy baseball community. Um and it's important. Yeah, we're competing against each other, but I think it goes beyond that, like the friendships we can build along the way, right? I know it sounds a little, little cheesy or whatever, but um, you know, I'm happy to um to help in any way I can. Anyone that wants to get better at fantasy baseball. I love talking baseball. So I'm uh, uh I'm really glad you had me on.
0: Thanks, man. Really appreciate it. And um, yeah good luck in the league this year. Yeah, you too, Rob. All right, cool. Thanks, man. All righty, folks. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Po Hitter Podcast. I think we had a wonderful episode right here. Truly, truly actionable stuff from Mr. Johnson. And, yeah, just really, really awesome to get him on and to have him give us uh, a, a little peek into his process, into his brain and how he approaches fantasy baseball. Um Hope everyone is having fantastic time in their lives and wish everyone all the best. Thank you for everyone who left a rating review. And if you haven't left one yet and you feel inclined, if the podcast is helping you, please do so. It goes a long way for the pod itself. And yeah, merry drafting and uh, look forward to keep pumping out some more episodes. And don't be a bag of shit.